So welcome everybody. And I wanted to get us started this evening um, in a total ad-lib fashion, because um, <clears throat> I'm coming from one event um, to another. And sometimes when you're uh, like semi-prepared and some new stuff just popped into things, um, sometimes that's that's uh, that makes for interesting thinking um, because you don't have that much time to prepare for it. Um, but um, I wanted to talk this evening about the relationship that we as humans have with water, and um, it's 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 something that I don't know that many of us give much thought to. And when you consider the magnitude of water. Um, for us as individuals, for us as a planet, and everything in between, um, you, you might think that we would uh, give more conscious thought to water. And the uh, something that I wasn't sure if I would talk about, but now that I just came back from it, it's it's a good way to um, get us into the moment. I was um, I'm I'm right now sitting on a structure that's technically, um, hopefully I won't get asked to leave. Um, I had to pop a little uh, construction fence to get here. Um, it's this, this structure in, in somewhat disrepair. And I'm up at the top of Philadelphia on, on the Delaware. It's called Glen Ford on the Delaware. It's an old estate that's now owned by, the, uh, about, by Fairmount Park. <clears throat> and um, it's in an interesting, point in Philadelphia. It's literally the northeast tip of um, or corner of, of Philadelphia. And on one, one border of the property is the Pequesing Creek the, uh, and, and another, which is the, uh, the northern border. And then the, um, the eastern border is the Delaware River. So I'm literally sitting on top of the Delaware right now. Um, it's very serene. I, I don't know if uh, if the podcast will pick up some of the sound of the wake below me. And what's interesting is it's not that far from the rest of the city, even though it's at the top of the city and it's otherworldly compared to, um, compared to, you know, if I was just sitting on the, uh, on the Delaware, getting closer to like where, um, uh, you know, se sections of North Philadelphia, Fishtown, that area um, come in and meet up with the river. So um, so one of the things that uh, Land Health does is we run this thing called the Watershed Steward Program. And it's this really cool program that's for high school youth. And we study all different aspects of the various watersheds in the city. And we had the opportunity today to um, take 20 people out on kayaks. And the tide was tied, it was timed absolutely perfectly to, to our ride. And so so from the Glen Ford point, we, we proceeded to get into kayaks right at the mouth of the Pequesing Creek. So the Pequesing Creek does for a, for a, a period, it forms the border with Bucks County uh, to, to the north of our city. It's the creek that maybe doesn't get a lot of notice, maybe because half of it um, is, is on, the, you know, one bank of it is in Bucks County. And... Um, and it doesn't have a lot of access in Philadelphia. It's, it's pretty hard to get to it. So we were fortunate enough to be in kayaks. And because we, we timed it perfectly with the, uh, the high tide, we were able to go about as far up the creek as you could before you hit a, a series of, um, you know, shallower areas with, with some, with, like, in light terms, rapids. And so, and then we, so we, we went from Glen Ford up as far as we could on Pequesing Creek. And then we went back down and then we went back up the, um, the, the Delaware River, almost to this other historic house called Andalusia. And, um, and it, was pretty, it was pretty fascinating stuff. And so, you know, I wanted, to be, I wanted us to kind of think about how we relate with water. And um, there's a couple of themes that I wanted to share. But, uh, but when, you, when you sail on the Delaware or kayak on the Delaware, up, you know, when you get close to where I am right now, um, the relationship with the water seems to be a lot better than it is just, um, you know, several miles downstream. Um, however, when you go up to Pequesing Creek, it's it's more demonstrative of what our relationships tend to be with creeks in the in the uh, in the urban setting. And um, Pequesing Creek, you can't; it has very little access point. Um, 
from a stream carter standpoint and you you see all these different um you, you pass under the big bridge that carries amtrak and uh and septa trains and you see all kinds of stuff leaching off of the off of the bridge that goes right into the creek then you go upstream from there and you pass under two different overpasses which are um you know uh, the northern um uh, direction and the southern direction of of what is now i called i-95 again and um again you see all kinds of um stress points where drainage from that from that highway comes right into the creek um there's this amazingly large um complex of apartments that's on um on the bucks county side of um of of the creek pakesson creek and their parking lot literally is is right on top of the creek so you wouldn't get a permit to be able to do this now but but there's this uh you know they say luxury apartments and to this day there are people parking in a parking lot with zero buffer between the endpoint of the parking lot and the creek meaning there's not a, an ounce of vegetation and you see all these cars parked in an area and you know every time you get a little sprinkle of a rainstorm nothing is stopping all the pollutants from that parking lot of going right into the tidal river so it's you know below where i am down the delaware is the baxter intake for um for the for the, the water department so a whole lot of drinking water gets taken in several miles downstream from the pakesson creek um and then has to be purified to make it drinkable in philadelphia but uh but it was but 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 then like we came back down the Pekessing and then we went upstream on the Delaware and you might have thought you were somewhere else. I saw double-crested cormorants. Um, there were belted kingfishers and I'm talking about several of them. And on these buoy structures that they have in the river, three of them have nests that, that, are, that have been built by ospreys. A huge osprey passed right over us. Um, then not too long after that, we, uh, we were we were treated to the uh, to the majestic um, flyover of a great blue heron, and we proceeded all the way up to this area that's called, they call it Mud Island, but it's, there's no there's no mud visible. It has what's called spatter dock, which is a uh, a wetland or a pond plant, um, which is great for filtering. It's great for habitat for fish and birds and the like. And this big area of um, of just you know sh a shallow part of the river, quite gorgeous. And so again. You know, I'm I'm looking across at New Jersey right now. It looks nothing like when I was when I gave a podcast um, maybe a month or so ago, and I did it from Pier 53. I look across the New Jersey there, and I see all kinds of like gypsum plants and all kinds of stuff in Camden and below Camden, and um, and yet here I'm looking out and and I'm seeing an island across the way, and it's not too far from where um, the uh, the Rancocas Creek which flows through the New Jersey Pine Barrens, um, flows right into the Delaware. By the way, a, um, a kingfisher just flew in front of me. I think he heard me calling him or she. Um, very gorgeous bird. So, so it's really interesting to note that given our relationship, which I'm going to talk about is largely one-sided, um, here we are not, I'm, I'm, I'm still sitting um, in, in the confines of Philadelphia and, and and looking around here, you might not know we were we were in this big, large polluted city. So, so that's that's just some intro. Given that I just literally came back from that a few minutes ago, and then it's it it really is good to put me in the mood to talk about our relationship with water. And a theme that I thought of when, when I when I was coming up with this is is that in a lot of ways. Um, we should think back to the myth about Narcissus. And I think we're all like Narcissus. And if you, and the, uh, there's a few different versions of the story of, of Narcissus, but I think most of us um, uh, relate to the, you know, one where, you know, this, this guy, um, you know, was, uh, you know, he was, he was lured to a, uh, to a pond or a, a water body. And, um, and uh, I think for a drink, and he was, and he looked into the water body, and he saw himself as this beautiful, youthful being. And he basically fell in love with his reflection. Um, and uh, and then, um, as these, you know, as Greek mythology tends to do, um, somebody needed to get revenge on somebody. And and uh, you know, the the the, uh, the the what ended up happening was 
um, his uh, his punishment for not um, not showing affection for um, I think it might have been Echo, but uh, I, um, don't quote me on that. Um, for another uh, Greek figure, um, uh, some goddess or some some something of the sort, um, you know, he it, it, he ended up um, looking at his re reflection, and um, and he and he. He burnt up with passion, and he was turned into a um, a yellow and I think a golden yellow flower. And um, I know from my botany that Narcissus is uh, is there's a series of flowers that I think have that as their genus. But but I always thought of uh, I always know daffodil to be um, of, of the Narcissus variety. And if you think of the color of daffodil, so maybe from this point forward, when we see a daffodil, we'll think of Narcissus, and then we'll think of ourselves. And then maybe after listening to this podcast, we'll think of ourselves in relation to the water around us. Um, because I really do think when we look into the water, it really reflects who we are as individuals. It reflects our values. It reflects our ethics. It, reflects, it, it actually reflects our self-respect. And um, you know, we really take water for granted. And maybe it's because we, we, we grow up knowing that it's, it's so plentiful that most of the uh, surface of the earth, 70% or so, is covered with water. So maybe we just think of it as this thing, it's just there, um, like the air around us, which we also should not be taking for granted. Um, but you know, in, in, in fact, in a lot of ways, water is such a scarce, precious resource. It really depends on, 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 what you're, on how you're viewing it. But um, it is true that, that most of our Earth's surface is covered by water, um, but it's also true that almost all of that water is um, of the salt variety or saline. And really only about 2% of, um, of the water on our planet is, would be considered fresh water. And, and, then, and then the number even gets lower and lower when you, when you think of, what, of, of fresh water that's accessible to us because even in the midst of global warming and melting glaciers, about half of that fresh water is still tied up in ice. So in round numbers, you know, no more than one, less than 2% of all the water on the planet is even available to us in an easily usable format, you know, which tends to be non-salt non water. And um, so, so, so the water that we use for our daily purposes it absolutely is a scarce resource, totally scarce. And, um, and, and, and depending on where we live, um, we have more or less realization of that. You know, we, we who live east of the Mississippi happen to be lucky in that there's, there's a lot of groundwater reserves. There's a lot of creeks around. Um, you know, Philadelphia might pull its water from the Delaware River um, and the Schuylkill. But, um, but at the same time, you know, we have groundwater galore. So, it's, so it, if, if somebody needed to access water um, through a well, you know, all around Pennsylvania, Maryland, New Jersey and stuff, we have, we have amazing, you know, water resources. The New Jersey Pine Barrens, which I'll mention a little bit later, has, has, a, has an aquifer under it, which is one of the, uh, the, the, the most precious, largest aquifers in the entire world. And so that, you know, that's right across the bridge from us. So, um, so we might not really think about water, you know, like access to water. Once you start heading west in our country, it gets more and more pathetic um, the further west you go. And you know, in, in, in places like California and Arizona, you have states battling each other to pull water out of the Colorado River um, you know, for their various purposes that they use it for. The mighty Colorado River that cuts through the Grand Canyon over millions of years and, and, and built that you know, and, and made, made a, uh, like a gorge over a, a mile deep with all the beautiful sandstone and, and other stones that are, that are revealed through the cuttings. Um, you know, that empties, it, it, I think it might be the Gulf of California, but it's, it's a, it, it, it empties in, in the marine setting um, and it's basically a trickle because, because all the upper uh, users of that river took so much of the water out and so rather than it being this rich estuary where, where the, the mouth of a river meets like a bay or a gulf environment, you know, it's, it's, it, it, it's, this, sad, it's this sad little trickle of a, um, of a, of a stream. And, um, and you try to get groundwater in California, groundwater is something is, 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 
is when the satur when there's a saturation point in the soil or the rock below us, you dig deep enough anywhere, you're going to come to water or, or, or saturated conditions. And there are places in, in, um, in California where 100 years ago, you, you had to drill a well to a certain point and you could get your water at that point. And now 100 years later, if you in that same spot, if you wanted to drill for water, you might have to go literally like 100 or more feet deeper than that just to get to where the groundwater begins. So we're, we're just, you know, and, and we're the United States where we don't have, um, we're, we have our share of issues, but we don't have them um, in, in, in abundance as, as, as other places like Af parts of Africa and South America where potable water is just, is, is, is extremely rare. And there's people that, um, that, are, that are dying on a daily basis, either due to diseases that they're getting from drinking stuff that's not safe, or just literally because they, they just can't get enough water in their diet. So it's a really, um, so water really is, you know, from a world standpoint, it's an extremely precious commodity. And, um, and, and we just, we just kind of use it with reckless abandon. And we don't really think about our, our relationship with it as far as like taking care of it or replenishing it. Um, because there's no shortage of water, but, there, but, but as far as like usable water, and water that's safe and clean, not just for us, but for plants and animals, that's what's really, um, you know, is not given the respect that it ought to have. So a few things, um, thinking more like local that, that I thought about um, relate to this relationship idea. And, um, you know, for one, I mentioned the Baxter plant. So Philadelphia, has a relationship with this this very Delaware River that I'm sitting on, and um and we you know we we take our uh, we take our water from the Delaware or you know a tributary or two that that flows into it. Um so so by the way, beautiful osprey right across the the, the way there where, where also where I'm sitting are these sailboats that are anchored um in a in a uh, calm section of the river and right on the top of a mast. Of a of an anchored sailboat, um, I'm, I just was joined by a beautiful osprey. So um, I feel like I'm not alone in this podcast. Um, but uh, but back to back to Philadelphia's um, relationship with the river, we have this really funky relationship with the Schuylkill and the Delaware. As I discussed at some point at some point um, in a prior podcast, we um, like Philadelphia has set the uh, set the standard for how to how to how to in a high tech manner um, dam a river and efficiently get that get that water gravity fed to the rest of the city and that's what what was created at, at the Fairmount Waterworks in the 1800s but then the pollution of the uh, of the Schuylkill made that become obsolete and they had to re re resort to other means um, which rely heavily on on chemical purification of, of the drinking water. What's interesting is Philly historically, you know, Philly was, was in the lead as we were the uh, first capital and we were kind of like the center of things when, um, when the colonies got started, but uh, we were readily and quickly overtaken by New York City in so many ways. Well, who, who also has a relationship with the Delaware River? New York does, because New York, they, they, they take advantage of being further upstream and way up in the Catskills, um, closer to the headwaters of the Delaware River. You bet New York um, is, was able to, you know, get the rights to capture that water, pull it out in a, in a very clean state, send it through a series of aqueducts, which are amazing. And um, if you've ever driven out on like 287 or 684, there's, a, there's this you know, right, right on the uh, outskirts of New York City, um, you think you're driving through the, the land of lakes and that's New York City's water. And so like, so, so basically New York pulls its water, um, you know, that's, that's largely fed by groundwater, which is, which, is, which is very much filtered water out of this Delaware River that I'm sitting on that's loaded with pollution, even though it looks pretty clean right, right from here. And um, New York hardly has to purify its water. One, the, I was tickled. Um, in a, in, in a bunch of years ago, I read a New York Times article, which I personally love, and um, I should get my hands on it. But, uh, but the gist of it was Hasidic Jews in New York were up in arms because somebody 
must have taken a magnifying glass, but they, they realized that in the, um, in the produce that was being sold in, in stands, which had, you know, if you picture like fresh tomatoes, um, have droplets of water on them, or maybe they're sitting on ice, they realized, somebody realized that the water, some of it had, had like the leftover shells of, 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 of like of crustaceans, of like little shrimpy things. And um, which are, which are very good to have in water because they're, uh, they're macroinvertebrates. They're, you, you want to, in any healthy stream would be loaded with all kinds of um, um, insect larva, beneficial insect larva like mayflies and, um, and, and you know, things that, that, are, that are various arthropods and shrimp relatives and things like that. And so um, if you keep kosher, you don't eat shellfish. And so technically, they, you know, the, 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 the religious Jews that were looking at the produce were saying, oh, my God, the, um, the, I, I'm buying a tomato, but it has a mini shellfish on it. Um, and I was like, first off, we could all use the extra calcium um, that, that you get in eating like shells and bones and stuff if you happen to, to like, you know, eat that stuff. Like if you're eating sardines, by the way, eat the whole sardine. The bones are good for you. Um, but um, but go, go figure that New York has to do so little to its water, it's, meaning it doesn't have to put it through all this crazy chlor chlorination process that, 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 that Philadelphia does. Um, you know, they, they still have like little critters or at least leftover little critters. Um, and New York water tastes way better than, than Philly water. So, um, so New York might not respect water more than we do, but they certainly um, you know, ha have a leg up in, um, in, in having rights further upstream to this very Delaware that, that makes so much of, of the personality of, of Philadelphia. Um, thinking also to, to, to systems around drinking water and, um, and, and, and also like how wasteful sometimes it could be to have open systems where you, where you just take water, use it once, and then you, um, you, and then you send it somewhere to be treated. And you know, there are systems that are called closed systems. And if you were gonna go into an area that really did have a shortage of water, um, you, you can build a, a system where, we, where, where water could literally be, you know, you could drink it, you could, you could, um, you could yeah, um, make your waste products with it, you can wash your hands, you can go to the bathroom, and you can have all that gray water um, or even sewage brown water go, you know, get, go to a certain place, hopefully that it, 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 it's loaded with, um, with living plants with, with, with rich root mass. And then, and then through largely natural processes, take out the impurities of that water and send it back upstream, so to speak, in a system. And you literally could keep circulating water that way and, um, and, 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 and basically in, in, in a very efficient manner. And so it's like, a lot of people might not realize that Philadelphia to a degree does that, but not by design. So for instance, the, if you're familiar at all with the Wissahickon Creek, the relationship that we have with the Wissahickon Creek is typical of urban and suburban relationships that, that, um, that, that individuals and families tend to have with creeks. We don't give them much thought. We wanna build a property, we build up as far as close to the creek as we can. We don't really think about stream buffer. Um, uh, the Wissahickon Creek, I don't know how many golf courses it must pass through or near. You know, we build golf courses and, and load them up with fertilizer and we, you know, we put them right next to creeks and things. So the Wissahickon doesn't get a whole lot of respect in its 22 or so miles that it, that it, that it runs um, through Montgomery County in Philadelphia. But the other, the other um, stress on Wissahickon Creek is Humans have put so much gray infrastructure, by that I mean roads and sidewalks and, and rooftops, into our environments that, um, that, that, uh, that, that rainwater doesn't have the opportunity to infiltrate like it would in, in a forest. So when, when, it, when it rains, what you really want is you want that rain to, to penetrate the soil and build up the groundwater so that you get a higher water table, which is the, the, upper, the up, upper portion of your saturated soil conditions or your groundwater. And so the health, healthy streams are largely fed by groundwater, not surface water. So um, me, meaning, you know, they, they, tributaries might run into them, which is fine, 
Um, but, uh, but, but they don't want to be reliant on, um, on a lot of stuff that flows over the land as their main source of water. In the case of the Wissahickon Creek, um, the, the area has been built up so much that that creek, if it were left in a, in, a, in, a, in a totally natural state, it would flow as a tiny little trickle. In, in fact, it, 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 there's still a couple of places to this day in the, in the higher reaches of it, which actually are not perennial. There's a few places where, where, the, where the stream kind of can dry up for a time in August or, or early September. But the Wissahickon, whenever you see it, it always has a, at least a, a steady base flow of water. And base flow refers to the flow of a stream that generally is always there. Healthy base flow would be provided by groundwater um, coming to the surface or at least or, or making, its, ma making a connection to the base of a stream. And hence the groundwater is what, is, is what comes to the surface and then feeds that stream. But the Wissahickon has very little groundwater connection that's left. But what the Wissahickon does have in the suburbs is four or five, I think now there might be four because one, one might have been closed, sewage treatment facilities. So, so the suburbs have, have at least um, four places where when you flush your toilet and use your garbage disposal, you know, that, that, that all follows pipes and it goes to a, to a local sewage treatment plant. And, and at that sewage treatment plant, they do something that's called secondary treatment because that's what the law says is, is, um, is required. If they did tertiary treatment, it would be a lot better, but it would be a lot more costly. So they choose to do secondary treatment. And so they treat the water to a degree and then they send the water back out somewhere. And so four of those facilities empty that cleaned or relatively or somewhat clean water into the Wissahickon. So the Wissahickon, um, the, the bulk of the flow of the Wissahickon is treated wastewater. And so the Wissahickon flows out um, you know, right, right above um, East Falls and, um, and it meets the Delaware River. I'm, I'm, sorry, I'm sorry, it meets the Schuylkill River. And then um, about not, maybe at most a half a mile downstream on the Schuylkill, you have your Queen Lane intake that's, um, that, that pulls water out for the Philadelphia Water Department, pumps it up the big hill into East Falls. If you've ever been on Henry Avenue and seen the big reservoir that you pass when you're in East Falls, that's, you know, that, that comes from that specific intake. And, uh, and, and I was privy to a, um, to a water department memo from a bunch of years ago. And, um, and, and that, that memo confirmed that 10% of Philadelphia's drinking water comes out of, out of the Wissahickon Creek. And, and the reason for that is like w when water, when one, you know, body of water mixes with another, it doesn't necessarily get totally diffused. It, it, it um, Water can be layered just like anything, just like a cake. And um, if you've ever been in a lake before and you took a dive down, you know, you go from like, you know, it might feel warm and next thing you know, it's freezing. Water's stratified. And so, so, um, so basically the Wissahickon enters the, the Schuylkill, it hugs the side of the Schuylkill. And so when it, by the time that the Schuylkill passes the uh, Queen Lane intake, a, a huge percentage of that water actually came out of the Wissahickon Creek. So, so at least 10% of Philadelphia's drinking water is, the, is literally the treated waste of the suburbs. So, um, you know, so we, you know, that, that's, that's part of our relationship with the, with the water. Um, to, um, to, to draw it out um, to a little bit further away from Philadelphia, <clears throat> um, we, we're um, like, to this day, there still seems to be a frenzy with building pipelines for various reasons. There's a Mariner pipeline that I believe Sunoco, um, who certainly has left its mark in, on Philadelphia in, in numerous negative ways. Um, Sunoco kind of, you know, with their pipes for petroleum rules the underground in a lot of places in, in Philadelphia, or did they, if, if, assuming that they sold the, uh, the, the rights to those pipes to some other, um, you know, big behemoth. But, um, you know, the, 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 the Mariner pipeline that's been, that's been being built as we speak, just recently it had a, a few leaks, almost like, it, like it's nothing and, 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 um, and, and, and it's no big deal. And there's just le left and right, there, there's, there's always like lawsuits by, by environmental groups you know, trying to prevent you know, new pipelines from, 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 being, um, from being built. And then the, the defense for the pipelines is one, 
we know what we're doing. It's, we're, this is very safe. And two, it's going to make jobs happen. It's good for the economy. And, um, you know, there, there's, there, there, there was fighting for years over um, putting a, a, a pipeline through a part of the, the New Jersey Pine Barrens. I believe the battle finally is over, but I don't think there's any such thing as, as finally, um, because there, there was even a group that's a, that's a Pine Barrens group. Um, the Pine Barrens Commission um, at a time had voted to support, um, you know, the, the building of this pipeline. So back to that idea of, of, of rich groundwater, the New Jersey Pine Barrens is, is, is home to the Kirkwood Cohansey Aquifer. There are trillions and trillions of gallons. I think it's three to 5,000 feet deep. Um, and if you, if you ever drive down the shore, you realize that once you get about 10 miles of, you know, east of Philadelphia, you start, um, you, you start seeing more and more forest. Um, if, you get, if you ever take the uh, Atlantic City Expressway um, towards the shore, you know, soon after you get on the expressway, you even see a sign that says that you're entering the pine lands, um, the protected area. Uh, and, and, and the New Jersey Pine Barrens is about a million acres. Go figure, in the most densely populated state, we have a natural area that's, that's a million acres large. Um, but almost the entire New Jersey Pine Barrens is underlain by sand. And, um, and New Jersey gets about 45 inches of rain a year on a typical year. And unlike the environment of like Philadelphia, where it rains and just as quick as you can say water, that water tends to find its way into like a storm sewer um, or just sometimes wash directly into, into a local creek and very little of it infiltrates. The opposite is true in the Pine Barrens. Like 99% of the water that falls in the Pine Barrens, it gets just sucked up by that sandy soil and it gets filtered to the nth degree and becomes part of that, that rich aquifer. And, but if you ever think about like, did you ever spill a drink on, on, at the beach? You, you, you know, you look down and, you know, you might see a little dent in the sand, but where'd your water go? Um, sand is extremely permeable. That water gets in there in, in no time flat. And so, so what do you think would happen? You spring a small leak of, of, of any kind of chemical um, in a sandy aquifer. Um, you know, the, uh, oil tends to move in plumes. Go try to catch that baby in, in, a, uh, in, in a sandy aquifer. You're just not going to do it. Um, you know, once, once something gets loose in an aquifer that where the, um, you know, where the, uh, the structure is, um, is something like sand, you, you just, you just can't contain a spill. And the fact that to this, like, you know, in, in, until recently that we, that, that super serious consideration was being given, you know, to, to taking that kind of a chance. And if you build a pipe underground and you flow something through that pipe, um, I can't guarantee it all the time, but over time, it's going to leak because, you know, what company does its due diligence and checks every time, every place that there's an intersection with that pipe, you know, a, weak, a potential weak spot, um, you know, for, to, to see if anything's going to happen, let alone there's always, you know, there's always settlement. There's always, you know, there could be small geologic things like tremors and stuff. And so like, you know, like who, who can say that they, they're going to build a pipeline and it's, and it's guaranteed not to leak. I don't know anyone that can do that. And so, but what's, what does that say about our relationship with, with the water? That, you know, what, we can't see it? Um, jobs are more important? You know, I don't, you know, that, that's, again, like, when, when back to Narcissus, we're look, like, that's, that's us making decisions. Um, how long does it take to clean up a spill? You know, the, 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 um, the, re, the uh, spill, it wasn't that recent, but whatever it was, um, I think it was the BP oil spill uh, several years ago, maybe it was six years ago, something, eight years ago. Um, that, was, that, 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 that caused gargantuan destruction and death in the Gulf of Mexico, um, you know, when, when, when all that oil um, w was released into the, uh, into the Gulf. Then I read later on that, the, that, that a, a certain chemical that they used to try to coagulate the oil so they can kind of... Um, scoop it back up, that that chemical was almost as lethal, if not as, if not more so than the oil that went in there. Again, like, what, like what, what's our relationship with, 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 with these, um, with, with the water, if, um, you know, if, if we do things where we know that in time, you're going to get explosions, you're going to get leaks. So again, that, that relationship 
accepting. It's just, it's, it's like, it, we, we need to ask ourselves, like, like what, what are our values? And then another thing I was thinking about um, just this past weekend, you know, I was uh, at the Jersey Shore and, um, and I gave my, uh, it was my daughter's birthday and I, I um, facetiously gave her a uh, balloon for her birthday because um, I was watching my little daughter swim around in the ocean and all of a sudden I see the, this shiny gold thing. And, um, and then I look more closely and kind of like, you know, floating, eb ebbing in, um, going back out, but um, with the, uh, you know, with the in and out of the, uh, of, of the waves and the tide, I see this, this mylar thing, because I'll call it a balloon, but let's just call it a thing, because it was like a dragon or something. And so I waited out, I pulled the thing in, and this thing, it was gold as can be, it was, it was long as could be, just for good measure in case it wasn't gaudy enough. It had these streamer things, um, like these, you know, made, made out of polyester or something. And, um, and so I, I did my civic duty, which I don't really love having to do because people ought to be able to take care of their own garbage, pulled the thing in, and then I went to uh, my daughter and said, hey, happy birthday, I got you a nice balloon, um, which she dutifully uh, tossed out in the trash and she was greeted by this mass of flies when she tried to put it in the overstuffed trash. So go figure. But, um, but back to that Mylar balloon, um, you know, think about that. There are all kinds of traditions. Sometimes they celebrate a happy event. Sometimes they commemorate a sad event. Um, or sometimes people just do it to do it. But, uh, you know, how many helium balloons are like cut and released because it's pretty and it makes for a spectacle. Like, how can we not think about what's happening to that balloon that we send up into the sky? Like, what's gonna happen to the helium, which is lighter than air, when the helium finally um, makes its way out of that balloon, and that balloon starts making its way back to Earth? You know, we at least should be connected enough to know that everything goes to sea level. Gravity's gonna take anything it doesn't make its way to a landfill or get reused or get picked up by somebody. And it's going to, in time, it's going to find its way to some body of water. And I don't know that anybody's done a count on how many, on how many, you know, creatures of wildlife get, you know, get, get killed by, um, you know, by, by mylar balloons and, and, and balloons made out of other uh, plastic materials. Um, I don't like I, I, I who knows I might have saved in, in pulling that balloon in um, the life of a uh, mid-sized shark or something. But I'm telling you, you know, when, when you know when the critters see these shiny things, you know, um, floating by them, you know, either at the surface or, or, or below the surface, um, it looks pretty inviting. And, uh, you know, and it's and it's it, it, and, and more times than not, something that's 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 that shiny it's going to, something's going to attempt to, to, to ingest it. And, um, but again, like, like where do, like, they are not all accidental things where a poor kid um, loses his or her balloon. Like we put these things up in the sky, you know, it, it's again, like what, what, where's the thought process when it comes to our relationship with the water. And so, um, you know, so it's just, it's just uncanny to me that, um, you know, that that's that, that, that there's just not more proactive thought when water sits all around us. You know, water has a lot of good aspects to it that, that, um, that people make a huge deal over. And so that's, that's another thing that makes me just kind of curious at the disconnect. So there, there, there are plate all over, you could do like real estate surveys. And, you know, like I, I, always, I always get sad when I see a reservoir. It always makes me think of the movie Deliverance um, that was a heavy movie, but uh, they were, you know, the, the guys in Deliverance were, um, you know, they were taking a whitewater rafting trip down, down this really, you know, rough river. But um, they, they also knew that, that there was going to be a dam put in at the end. And so it was sort of like the, the last heyday of, um, of riding the rapids on that river, if my memory of that movie is correct. Because, you know, and, and it was, it was, they were destined to, to dam it up and build a reservoir. Um, you know, there's no such thing as a real lake in Philadelphia, okay? If you see a lake in Philadelphia or south, it, it, um, we're, we're below the glacial line, and, 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 it's, and most lakes are formed, um, you know, through glacial um, uh, happenings 
um, where there's like a deep scour by like, you know, moving like a, a moving piece of ice or, or like a, a, you know, rock connected to that. And then, uh, and then, and then the ice digs a big hole and it, that, that, um, and when the melt happens, you're left with a nice lake. Um, Philadelphia doesn't, we don't have, we don't, we make our lakes. And so, um, so, so we, we love reservoirs. What's a reservoir? It's, it's putting a dam across the stream and letting the water pile up. Um, you know, there's a funny name of, of Peace Valley Park in Doylestown. Um, it's, uh, it, it, it's, it, it, it's, it's built, I think it, the town is Galena, where they could mine lead. But basically, they, they flooded a whole town, and it's this huge lake that you can walk around. I mean, when you think about it, you're, 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 you're probably over you know, buried shacks and things that were, that were left over from the olden industrial days. And now, and they, and, and they, and it has this beautiful name called Peace Valley Park, but, um, you know, but, it, you know, but it's a, uh, it, I believe it, it might be a piece of the Neshaminy, um, or at least in the Neshaminy watershed, you know, it's this big lake that you can ride around and stuff and walk around, but, um, you know, but it's not a natural body of, of water. And so, but when, when people buy properties, like for the most part, so many people will, will pay a premium so if you know, for their house to face a reservoir, you know, like, like, but, there, but so obviously there's something about that view, even though it's not like a reservoir to me, again, it's, 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 uh, it's water and there could be fish and stuff living in that water, but it's, 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 it's the furthest thing from a natural body of water. And yet people, you know, th th like people will pay way extra for that connection, that view of the water. Um, people, uh, my parents live in Margate. <laughs> The town, the town of Margate, it just makes me laugh. Um, they, they, um, they I, I believe they sued um, you know, the, uh, after um, Hurricane Sandy. And um, I think when Christie was, was in charge of New Jersey, um, you know, basically he mandated that there, there, there needs to be you know, just a line of dunes across all the Jersey Shore beaches, um, which you know, that's a pretty good, a, a dune is, is a way better thing to have than, than not having a dune. Our barrier beach islands are a mess because you know one dune's not going to like save everybody, but one dune's going to make a huge difference um, compared to no dunes. But um, Margate, um, like the people that had houses that, that faced the ocean, they were up in arms. You can't you can't build um, dunes. We already have a seawall. We're good, you know. So they, they didn't want to lose their view of the ocean, and they were willing to um, you know they were willing to whether they re realized it or not you know, add the risk of a flood of, of their house being hit by a, um, you know, by a, you know, by a, like a, a high tide in a storm. Um, and, um, and they actually fought and paid money, like a lot of money, legal fees to fight. Um, and then they lost and then they, and they built the dunes. And then of course the army Corps of engineers didn't do a good job with the dunes. Um, and so they, uh, they had a big nightmare issue because they forgot to, to, to think about the water table. And so water piled up behind the dunes, fresh water that is. So like all the rainwater that washed into the uh, into Atlantic Avenue um, in Margate um, would would typically make its way to the beach. But then they had built these newly constructed dunes, and then and then and then the water piled up behind them, and nobody realized. Even though sand is permeable, if your water table is just about like a foot or less below the uh, the sand, um, your water's gonna the new water's gonna sit on top. So then what does the, Ar the Army Corps is a hilarious group to, to watch how they, uh, how they make, if you like did a review of their, their construction projects that our tax dollars go to, um, you'd find way more uh, mishaps than, than successes. And so what did they do? They had to then come out and build these massive pumping devices. And if you go to the beaches in Margate and Ventnor in different places, you see these big things, which are basically piping out the rainwater below the dunes. So sorry for the meander there, but it's just, um, but again, if we had more like relationship with the water, it's not just about the water that we see, it's the water that we don't see. Because I remember thinking like, how could they have not done little soil borings and measure where the water table is and note that New Jersey gets 45 inches of rain, where's the water gonna go when you get a heavy rainstorm and, um, and, and you build a dune there, okay? Um, so anyway, it, 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 that's, that's what happened there all because of disconnect over water. So you have property owners saying, we don't want a dune because we don't, we don't want to lose sight of the ocean that, that, we, that our houses look out on. 
and which again is, is a is is not the, the wisest thing if you care about your house not getting inundated and then you had you know the army corps and and the government holding firm and winning and do, and, and really doing something that's better which is they, they constructed the dune but they didn't do the simple calculation to figure out that if we don't build an outlet for that water um because we got it we can't just think of surface water we got to think of groundwater yet again lack of a relationship lack, like lack of an intimacy with 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 the water around us so water's a precious thing it makes up our tears it makes up our saliva we write poems about it um you know why do we like to have a fountain those of us that do in our house why do we have to have like you know why do people like having a little um you know body of water like a little pond or something um why do we like the sound of, of it like we, we have, sometimes we have all these close connections with it. And yet on, on a grand scale, you know, our food can come out of, out, out of the, uh, out of water. Our drinking water comes out of it. But, but, but we really have, um, we, we really just have a lazy, disconnected relationship with the water around us. You know, the last little thing I'll say before kind of um, ending on, on something that, uh, you know, that I think is, is might, might, We'll, we'll share my own intimacy with, with the water, or at least an example of it. I'm, some, I'm, a, I'm, I'm not a Zodiac person, but I'm, I'm, I'm a, the, I am an Aquarian. I'm, I, I, although I don't get it, I think I'm not a water sign, but I'm the water boy because I'm Aquarius. But I'm, I literally am a water boy. Um, it's what really made me become an ecologist. So I, you know, maybe I'm being a little too harsh on others because I'm, I'm just constantly aware of our relationship to water. Um, but, uh, but I really don't understand, given that our bodies are made up of 50% or more of water. By the way, if you have more muscle, you have more water. If you have more fat, you have a little less water. Um, muscles mostly is, is, has a lot of water content. Again, think about that. Firm, firm muscle has, has a lot of water in it and has, and has a higher water content than fat. Like we are water. Um, we get excited when we find you know, signs that there might be um, ancient riverways on Mars because it doesn't mean that there's life that was on Mars, but we only know of the only way we can conceive of life is with water connected to it. It doesn't mean that there aren't other forms of life, but, um, but that's, that's how we view it. So I might be a little bit overly harsh with, um, with people's lack, lack of connection with the water, but maybe I'm not, uh, maybe I'm not so harsh. But well, one of the biggest wastes of water or inefficient uses of water from a global perspective, but we can even just talk about the United States, is our dependency on, on commercial agriculture, which is about one of the most inefficient um, businesses or systems out there. You know, we, we've converted our forests and our prairies to cornfields, soybean fields, turf fields, you name it, but we've gotten rid of all these natural environments that by the way, totally have a great give and take, you know, forests and prairies, they manage the water really, really well. They soak it in, they transpire it back out, beautiful vegetation happens, you know, in the process. Um, but what do we do? We cut that all down and we grow monocultures of corn. Um, it, it, the irrigation dwarfs, the use of water for irrigation dwarfs the amount of water we use for drinking water. I mean, California makes a lot of money growing avocados. Avocados are not native to California. What's happening in California right now? Fire, right? Drought. You know, it, it's you know, California has a Mediterranean climate throughout most of the most of the area. In a Mediterranean climate, you it, it one of the things that denotes that is that you get it. You get it two three months. Even like Seattle, it doesn't rain in August in Seattle. It just dries up. And so when you, when you have something and you insist on growing something that really needs a lot of water, like an avocado tree where it's not native, you inefficiently just load the area with, with water. A lot of that water just evaporates back up into the air. But when, when, when they're pulling water out of the, out of the uh, Colorado River, it's to grow crops that aren't even from the area. That, you know, and and, and they're, what did they do? They stripped the native vegetation from the area so that they can grow, you know, more lucrative um, food crops in a horizontal, inefficient, non-layered way, and um, but and at what price? Okay, it's 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 a huge it's a huge water price. 
And um, if you've ever seen like how much water gets thrown on, on, on flat areas that are monocultures, look at all the waste that takes place. Even your, again, what's a golf course? It's a monoculture of turf grass, Kentucky blue or something uh, similar. By the way, Kentucky bluegrass, it ain't from Kentucky. Um, it's from Europe. And so, you know, and it's, and, and, and what is Kentucky bluegrass and other, and other things like turf grass? If it came from someplace like England, where you don't necessarily get, you actually get less rain. London probably has a lower rainfall that, um, content over the year than Philadelphia does. But Philadelphia is 45 inches. You know, we can get these heavy rainstorms and stuff. It just drizzles all the time in places like, in places like London. It's great for grass. Gra grasslands in Ireland, they're natural. That's what, you, you know, that, that's, that's what grows naturally there. It loves that, that cool drizzle, never gets too hot, never gets too, too cold there. So that's, that's where this grass is from. Turf grass doesn't want to be in Philadelphia. So the only way you're going to keep your greens green on a golf course in July and August is you have to water the living you-know-what out of it. And so, um, so that's yet another monoculture. So irrigation is, is a killer. And again, we know this, but we keep doing it. So I thought about like sharing with you um, somebody I just got intimate with. And, um, and it sort of takes that, it, it's a, it, on a very small scale, it, 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 um, it relates to the sound of water. It relates to the use of water, efficient use that is. It relates a little bit to agriculture. But let me tell you about this, uh, this contraption. And he has a name and his name is Bart. And so our, um, our nonprofit Land Health um, um, got, the, you know, has started this relationship um, with, with, with this little company that's called Lettuce Grow, L-E-T-T-U-C-E, Lettuce Grow. And they devised this really cool contraption that does hydroponic growing. Hydroponics simply mimics nature, except you don't need it, it, it with like a minimum of the resources. So if you have a setup where you can regularly flush water over the root zone, and get some um, essential nutrients in at the root zone as well, and you give a light source, you can grow plants, you know, vertically, you can grow them efficiently, you know, without like, you know, being in a big plot of soil that needs a lot of water and, and inefficiently, you know, um, in an inefficient manner. And so, um, so Bart stands about six feet tall, okay? He's tan and, um, for those of you who, uh, who are like my age group, which is getting on old, um, maybe middle age still, um, if you ever saw the movie Sleeper, um, I thought that was a pretty funny movie. Um, there was a thing in, this, in Sleeper called the Orgasmatron. And it doesn't look exactly like the Orgasmatron. Um, check it out if you don't know what I'm talking about. But Bart kind of reminds me of that. It's this, it's this space age looking thing, nice curves and everything. And Bart has about 24 or 36 holes. Each of those holes takes a little kind of a plug of, of roots. And, and, I'm, and so Bart basically is sprouting all kinds of veg, vegetation in, in his six feet of splendor. So, so Bart um, is this vertical thing. And I can't even count how many different uh, varieties of lettuce that we have growing out of, out of Bart. By the way, um, it's called Lettuce Grow, but my daughter, for some reason, said it looks like a Bart, and so I can't help it. I, I keep calling it. He's Bart in our family, and he's kind of like part of the family now, and I'm talking about a family that has three cats, one dog, um, about five different geckos, an axolotl, and like fish beyond what we can count, and a red foot tortoise, and I'm sure I'm missing a few other things, including the parakeets that died a few years ago that we never buried in the backyard, and they're still in my freezer in the garage. But um, again, another meander, but Bart's really part of the family. So Bart, um, periodically, Bart makes noise. And it's kind of like the noise I'm hearing um, below me of the Delaware River, because it's um, periodically a flush of water is flushed over the root system and with, with some nutrients in it. 
and it's and it's very relaxing. So like uh, we have a sunroom, and I love to keep the uh, the, the uh, sliding doors open because I know periodically I'm going to hear that ah that calm flush of water, and it's Bart just watering the plants um, at 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 the root zone, and so we grow strawberries. Um, I'm I'm like in awe of Bart. Bart right now has jalapeno peppers, and they grew like crazy, and 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 they grew out of they 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 grew from this little hole. And I remember saying, "There's just no way that once they get a certain size, they're gonna they're gonna tip Bart, or they're just gonna they're gonna break off." And I got a I got a plant that must have like 20 jalapenos on it right now, and, and I'm serious. And um, and and it's holding on for dear life, and it's growing out of Bart. Next to that, we have strawberries, um, we have tomatoes. Um, we have some squash plants. And then if you know how squash grows with like vines and stuff, Bart's taken over my patio. The, these different, um, these like these runners, strawberries do the same thing. They send these runners out and they can spread all over the ground. Well, if they spread and there's another plant nearby and my patio has no shortage of plants, they're taking over my plants. I got to like keep, keep them away. So Bart is this amazing invention and he makes really plant, like, you know, um, calming sounds and i'm sure that's not even part of the design that's something um that the people that uh sell bart auto um auto auto market and get this i can't remember the last time we had to add water to bart so it's an it's a closed system so the water like circulates periodically within inside bart the amount of nutrients we put in if you if you look at them and you could hold them in a pinch of a finger it's very little and that's what gets circulated. And we're just growing plants out the wazoo out of this, out of this thing. It takes up like, you know, it, its footprint is, it, you know, you know, the radius of it has to be like two feet or something like that. It's, 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 if that. So I'm already getting ready for the, uh, the winter. Um, we're going to buy a light, um, an artificial light ring that's going to go on top of Bart so I can bring Bart inside. I'm going to start growing. You know, I mentioned Narcissus at the beginning. We, um, you can, we can grow flowers. We can grow edible flowers or we could just grow flowers for the sake of growing flowers inside. But when I was, I was I, like, it's funny, um, our, our, uh, our, our nonprofit had a chance to test out this product because it's electric, because it's, um, it, it needs to be plugged in. I said, I'll gladly take it on and, and, and check it out because we didn't, you know, our native plant nursery didn't have a place to plug in a BART. Um, but now I've fallen in love with Bart. And so is the, my whole family. Like we love Bart. And, um, and but when you think about it, we are getting so much produce out of something that takes up like, like almost no footprint. It's, it, it, um, all summer long, I haven't had artificial light. I just had it out back. And so the sun has produced the, uh, has provided the, the, the necessary light. Um, I could totally convert, if I put a solar panel on top of Bart, then I could, um, I could probably do away with the electricity um, or we can invent a, a solar paneled BART. But, but, but the point is, it's, it, it, it made me even have a heightened relationship with water to think like, wow, so little water, so little nutrients, none of those nutrients are gonna make their way into stream systems, right? They're just staying within BART and they're, and they're, and they're efficiently you know, replenishing the roots, sending all that um, letting the plants grow really, really lushly. Um, I think, you know, like I've really learned a lot from BART and I never intended to. I just was going to check out this thing because um, our nonprofit is, has been more and more interested in hydroponic growing anyway. But if everybody had a BART, um, they'd be growing all this produce, all these strawberries, um, you know, all these flowers at home. But, it would, but, but what would it also teach us about like, you know, about a relationship to water? And, um, and it might teach us a few good things. So the, the last I'll, I'll say is, what would Aldo think, right? Back to Aldo Leopold. And um, I wanted to close with him and just think about, you know, you know back, back to some of the, the writings of Leopold in Sound, Sand County Almanac, but, uh, but back to his seminal essay on the land ethic, where he, where he like is the first person to really say, something very simple, um, but that, and he defines land as, uh, as everything on the, on the, on the uh, outermost um, layers of the, of the planet. So land 
does include water. Land does include forest. It includes all of us. So um, land is the biosphere. So water is a big part of the biosphere. And what does he say about land? He says land should simply be part of the community. And, you know, that why don't we view water? It flows through our community. We dump in it in our community instead of instead of nurturing it. But but, you know, in, in, in the uh, taking the ideas of Leopold to the year 2020, why don't we just think more about water as as a very valuable equal member of our community and see if it doesn't change the way we uh, we start thinking about water and noticing the things around us. Thanks for tuning in and letting me kind of ramble a little bit um, because I can't I'm, I'm, I can't help but be pumped when I spend an afternoon on the water with uh, with glowing kids from all over the city, uh, which got me into sort of like a you know a mini ecstasy here. Mix in some uh, double crested cormorants and some uh, ospreys and some belted kingfishers. You know, I have to admit, I get a little high on that. So um, hopefully you got something out of this and hopefully your relationship and your connection with water has been heightened at least just a bit. I look forward to the next time um, uh, for, for tuning in to an, an, another topic within the ecosystem of my mind. Um, catch you all next week.